what is up, podcast people? This is Christopher Coleman of TrackSounds.com, and you're listening to a special interview edition of the Soundcast. Um, our guest today is author Sean Williams, who's written 70 published short stories and 29 novels. Uh, he's been nom- nominated for Ditmar Award and the Orialis and the prestigious Philip K. Dick Award. Um, some of his current projects are uh, Astropolis and The Broken Land. And very recently, it just came out, is Star Wars The Old Republic Fatal Alliance. And one of his other novels, which I have read, is The Force Unleashed, which was the novelization for the video game. And it was the first game tie-in to debut at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And so... I want to give a very special soundcast, tracksounds.com. Welcome to Sean Williams. Sean, thanks for joining us today on the soundcast. My pleasure, Christopher. It's wonderful to be here. Well, Thank it's, you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I should let the audience know that um, you're literally on the other side of the world uh, about <laughs> in, I, and I, 13 and a half hours <laughs> away. That's right, in, in a galaxy far, far away, it feels <laughs> yeah. like sometimes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your Saturday morning to uh, to talk with us. And, um, and this is a, a special interview, as I was saying a moment ago, because we've never interviewed an author uh, before, or whose primary occupation was an author before, but you have a very um, special background, and uh, you've you've you you're obviously a, a successful author, but also you have a great passion for music and uh, film music as a part of that. Uh, so that's why I wanted to to have you on and um, and talk a little bit about that. Um, and as we just jump right in, uh, maybe we can talk about some of your your writing first, and we'll move into music in just a couple seconds. Uh, sure, but, no problems. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I even ask that you know, being down in Adelaide, um, Southern Australia, how how does that work for you? Being in the business that you're in, do you find that it's because of today and the communication uh, technologies that are available that it that enables you to be there with with no problems? Well, it's certainly very easy down here now to communicate as we are via Skype and uh, the internet and phones and even to travel so much. I, I've, I've, I've grown up, spent most of my life in Adelaide, South Australia, right in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I've always said that it's a, a big small town where you can live quite cheaply and very comfortably. We have great wine, we have great food, we've got a great arts community here. Uh, and the money I save by not living in places like Sydney and New, New York enables me to travel uh, fairly extensively and then come back to my home where I work. So uh, these days it's, it's actually very easy. Uh, when I first started writing back in 89 1990 uh you know the internet kind of did existed did exist and, and the, the web was sort of coming but it it was still very difficult all my early submissions were conducted by mail um, or faxes um, back then and it was a, a little bit tough but i think i had less distraction then so it actually worked quite well in my favor <laughs> okay yeah well it, it, obviously it has ended up that way that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> yes um <laughs> looking back uh, on it it seems easy now <laughs> yeah why isn't everybody doing that right that's right. <laughs> um, well, I read I read um, um, Star Wars: The Force Unleashed. Well, I should say I read half of it because I was actually playing through the game at the same time, and I was getting ahead <laughs> of my game playing because it's easier to read <laughs> than play a game. <laughs> so yes, that's right. <laughs> so I actually kind of stopped halfway through um, because I was like, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself, and I'm finding out what's going to happen in the game. Um, but uh, but it's. But it was very interesting in having the experience of reading a book and playing a video game because obviously just like books in film or books in television, you get a lot more detail within the books. 
Um, but I want to I want to say what a great uh, and I, I never actually went back to finish it because I finished the game. <laughs> but but I wanted to say what a great what a great book that was. The half that I read. Oh, thank you. I thought it was. I thought Thanks it was very much. Excellent. Um, yeah, it was really an di- interesting process of, or a difficult process of, of turning a script for a computer game into a book. Um, uh, wait, 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 I, I don't want to preempt. No, that's <laughs> okay. No, uh, yeah, let's let's go that because I imagine you were working closely with Hayden Blackman, uh, who I think wrote wrote the original, you know, the screenplay for the video game. Is that true? that's right? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Yes, uh, when I was uh, brought onto the project, the, the script was still uh, still being written. In fact, even right up to as I was finishing my draft, there were still certain lines that were being moved around. And uh, I was halfway through the book through the book when they they cut three levels from the game. So I had to, uh, you know, for sort of micromanaging and major structural changes happening in, during the course of the writing, which was challenging and really fascinating. And, and of course, a computer game uh, isn't a isn't a book. So uh, trying to find a structure. Uh, for the book that worked as a book but was still based on the game was really challenging. Um, there's still a level-based kind of sequence to it, but uh, trying to find a, a, a rich and sort of narrative way to make that work was um, intensely challenging. Really, really fascinating as a writer to... I've always wanted... I grew up writing, uh, reading um, adaptations of movies, um, Alan D. Foster's novels and Terence Dick's novels from Doctor Who, and uh, I'd always wanted to have a go at a script. Uh, so it was a, real, it was a real dream for me to, to get the chance. I imagine it was probably un- unlike any. I'm sorry, unlike any other um, project you've had. That's right, and uh, the the Fatal Alliance novel that's just come out is based on the MMORPG of um, the Old Republic computer game uh, from the Star Wars universe. So a very right. different kind of game. So no script, and uh, and uh, and that was challenging in its own way. Um, in some ways, it was a relief 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 to go back to the script based kind of storytelling that uh, uh, came with the Force Unleashed two, which is coming out in a couple of months' time. Uh-huh. Um, so very different experiences with both books, but um, but very fascinating. Yeah, very enjoying. Uh, now you brought up uh, your recent release, the uh, Fatal Alliance, um, and of course that's as you mentioned, it's tied to uh, Star Wars: The Old Republic game, which is coming out, I think, in two thousand eleven. Um, now is this is this is this storyline that you've written directly a part of the, of the game, or does it precede the events of the game? How does it work? It, it's uh, the intention with the book is is to capture the essence of the MMO, uh, the world that it's set in, the kind of characters, the character classes that will be in the game, and the kind of stories that will be told. Uh, and, and that and that in itself is like a huge ask because the, the story arcs that are in the MMO will be like last for five years. They're huge, mm. huge story arcs. And it's set in a huge galaxy where there's dozens of worlds and uh, there's um, eight, at least eight character classes. So just trying to capture that uh, is hard enough. But trying to do that without actually giving away any of the plot mm-hmm. <laughs> is really challenging and really difficult. So so what this book uh, does is, is it's... Um, it's like a, um, an appetizer or a, um, uh, you know, it's designed to whet your appetite, to give you a sense of what the game's going to be like uh, uh, and to make you want to play the game, but also to be satisfying uh, in its own right as a novel because um, uh, there are some people who only read the novels and will never play the computer game. Uh, so it needs to work in its own right as a novel, and I think it does. It's a, it's a, it's a large, sprawling epic with um, multiple viewpoints and uh, and several plots that come together uh, in surprising, interesting ways. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was well, again a very, very collaborative process putting it together. We had uh, all the editors at Del Rey and the Lucas Lucas Books people in San Francisco and the, the all the game people. We had many, many conference calls and drafts going backwards and forwards. It was a hugely collaborative 
uh, exercise. Um, again, one very challenging, very enjoyable. Every every novel I've ever written for Star Wars has been challenging on my level and enjoyable on another, which is what makes it fun, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I've got that book as well, and I just started it, uh, and I think I got through the timeline. <laughs> it was like, I just was studying the time, like, oh, this is... 3,600 years before A New Hope. Okay, that's going back a ways. Um, this is actually the first the first novel, chronologically speaking, in the entire Star Wars series of novels, which I'm very excited about. Oh, that I didn't know that. It's the earliest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've worked, in, uh, worked, yeah, worked very early, obviously, on, in this book, and I've worked um, with, with Luke and Leia's kids in The New Jedi Order, and I've worked with Darth Vader's Secret Apprentice, obviously, just before Episode Four. so it's been fun sort of hopping around all these various years. Oh, I, I can imagine. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to, to diving into it, and I think it's going to be a fun ride. And you know, what an honor to be kicking off the this whole galaxy. You know, going back that far. That's that's an amazing honor. It is. It's very daunting. <laughs> and on that line too, though the the kind of the Force Unleashed story arc, from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, even Lucas himself has kind of said this is canon. Is that right? That's right. All the all the novels are canon, um, but I, I suspect that some novels are more canon than others. Uh, Lucas is more involved in uh, in some novels than others, and I know he worked very closely with Hayden Blackman on the script uh, in terms of what what could be shown, what couldn't be, because the Force Unleashed um, also, as well as portraying um, the life and times of Darth Vader's Secret Apprentice, uh, it also shows the creation of the um, the rebellion. Um, Restore the Republic, so it's it's very important in canon. And for a while, there was it was sort of nicknamed Episode Three Point Five for a while, The Force Unleashed. And as that story gets bigger, um, we see more and more into that little window of the the universe that we'd never seen in before. Uh, so yeah, important stuff for Star Wars fans and Star Wars writers. And uh, I guess most of us have grown up in a Star Wars kind of world. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> of, that's uh, right. Yeah. something a minute ago um which i think i know what happened uh you said that they took about three levels out of the game um which i'm imagining turned into their expansion uh levels the dlc that came and then the ultimate sith edition which came out uh, later in the year um which was kind of that alternate universe where where the apprentice goes dark um, is that is that what would happen? And if so, I mean, I don't know if you can tell me that or not, or you, you might have to kill me or something afterwards. But, um, <laughs> the, the Lucas chip in the back of my neck will uh, will go off, take the whole head with. <laughs> I mean, if that was the what, ca- if that sorry? was the case, I don't know how, and maybe it wasn't because I don't know how you would have worked that into the into the book. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that, yeah, that wasn't the case. There were there were there were extra levels. Uh, um, 
The Apprentice, I don't think I'm giving anything huge away here, The Apprentice was, one of his missions was going to be to rescue uh, an important general that was going to help with the rebellion um, from a prison. Uh, But there were canonical canon issues with it. Um, They weren't entirely sure where that general was at that time, and it sort of conflicted. So the the simplest thing was to take that level out. uh, Oh, I see. That particular um, and there was, a, I think, there was a test firing of the Death Star kind of plot in there as well, uh, okay. which was taken because again it conflicted with timelines. But there was one level that I really liked uh, uh, that I asked to be kept in the book because I thought it had a very powerful uh, thematic resonance uh, with the main character, with the Apprentice. Um, and I put my case as best I could that I should be allowed to keep it in the novel, even though it wasn't in the game, and uh, mm. and I was allowed to do that. So if you read the novel, there is a, a, a if you finish the novel, there is a there is a level there that isn't in the in the game that I think wraps up um, Starkiller's arc in okay. the sort of second uh, fairly comprehensively. I think I hope I certainly okay. loved writing it, and I would have been really sad if I'd had to cut it out. And I think when you're a writer, sometimes you you well, any kind of artist, you follow your instincts and and uh, and hope that. Um, time will out yeah absolutely well uh, now i'm gonna now you've just you've given me enough to go back and finish reading <laughs> reading the book <laughs> well now, i like to think that the book adds a lot to the game that you don't get from the game certainly juno's character is vastly expanded in the book yes uh, yeah so there's there's a bit more of juno there that you might want to see <laughs> yeah yeah abs- well I, yeah i picked that up just going you know through the first half and then um, so I look forward to seeing or reading through and now getting a little bit even bigger picture or better picture of, of, of her character. Um, now you are just making a transition. You are also an avid music lover. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm very curious, and this is really the question that, that, that came to my mind that prompted me to want to interview you. And that is, what do you listen to, uh, when you're writing? Uh, now, you're primarily writing in the sci-fi fantasy world, um, but does that necessarily mean that's what the kind of stuff you listen to when you're writing? Uh, it depends. Sometimes it depends on what I'm writing. Um, when I first started writing, I was listening to almost anything. I remember one of my novels I wrote entirely to uh, Peter Gabriel's Arts album. I'm not, I'm not sure why that album. I think for weeks I played that over and over and over again. Hmm. I'm not sure why that particularly appealed, uh, but it certainly did at the time. These days I can't write with anything with lyrics in it. I find it too distracting unless it's mm-hmm. maybe plain song or chant. I find it gets in the way with the words that are coming out of my head. For, uh, for several years I listened to, um, back when, when in the early days of being able to rip CDs onto your computer, I went through all my soundtrack collection and ripped out all my favorite relatively quiet bits and had a huge playlist that would just play at random hundreds of hours of of music which was fantastic uh so i listened to a lot of soundtrack material Um, nothing that's too loud or intrusive um i like to have music on that has a kind of energy or a structure or rhythm to it without being too boomy or or uh, intrusive, it won't get in the way. So, say, Bear McCurry's um, Battlestar mm. Galactica music, and fantastic music. Uh, mm. Some of the drums are a bit too um, a bit too aggressive or abrasive. It gets in the way of whatever's going on subconsciously in my brain. So, I tend mm. to like his mm. his quiet tracks, like the Passacaglia and um, and other tracks. Okay. Uh, these these days, I listen to a lot of um, uh, sort of experimental ambient electronic music. Um, mm-hmm. Steve Roach, in particular, is a real favourite. Um, some of Raichi Sakamoto's work with Alvanoto, carbon-based life forms, um, these kind of, again, energetic, backgroundy, and yet can also be listened to with headphones as pieces of music in their own right. Um, right. I'm on a constant search for that kind of music. 
when I first started writing Star Wars novels, I thought, um, back oh, 10, 12 years ago now, I thought, fantastic, I can dig out all my soundtracks and listen to them. And um, I put on the soundtrack to episode four, a uh, wonderful soundtrack. In fact, the first record I ever owned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found it, I couldn't write to it. I couldn't write even a Star Wars novel to it. I found it was just a bit too, I kept getting carried away by the music and distracted. Interesting. Uh, which is a shame, yeah. <laughs> Probably for the best, though. I think uh, having written um, now six Star Wars novels, I think I would have worn those CDs out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and probably learned to not like them quite so much <laughs> having played them over many times yeah okay now you have on 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 your on your site you have a list of a few uh soundtracks that um i i'm i'm seeing as you mark as probably some favorites and some to some degree which one would be alien by jerry goldsmith um uh, yeah. Psycho by Bernard Herrmann, um, Solaris by Cliff Martinez, uh, The Truth and the Light, music from The X-Files by Mark Snow. Um, Talk about those. Why did those make your list there? I think Alien was a... Alien partly uh, is a sentimental favourite because um, I wasn't allowed to see the movie when it came out. My parents said it was too violent. But I read the book, had the soundtrack, got all the magazines, had had the photo album, uh, listened to that soundtrack thousands of times, not realising that the soundtrack wasn't really used in the movie. Um, I didn't quite know the history of the the wonderful Jerry Goldsmith's soundtrack that he was commissioned to write, but then uh, a lot of temp tracks were used instead, so, uh, or alternate takes that didn't appear on the record. I I think he might even have paid for the, the... the recording to be made and released himself something like that it's a great story even if it's not true uh <laughs> well it's a good storyteller never, it, it never goes good on the internet that's for sure yeah. <laughs> it'll become canon now uh, so I, I but it's a it's a wonderfully um uh, aggressively primal score with all sorts of weird instruments and uh sounds like he's playing trumpets underwater at one point and uh it's it's so complexly rhythmic and atonal that I, i'd never really heard anything quite like it before i i was used to the, the john williams style scores from star wars at that point in my life and suddenly i i was listening there was a there was a radio show that i used to listen to a soundtrack radio show on uh, one of the public radio stations um 30 years ago now and they played a track from it and i was completely hooked by it straight away uh, one of my other favorite scores in a similar kind of vein is ennio morricone's score to the thing uh, which I which I really love for similar reasons, but it's it's a bit more lyrical and haunting and um, uh, and uh, oh, just it's very hard to capture in words why I love that so much. I, I think again, partly with soundtrack movie, it's often inevitably, I guess, uh, you love the movie and uh, it, the movie the music then evokes similar feelings that you um, were aroused while you were watching the movie, and I think the two become very entangled in your brain. But there are some scores. That uh, are movies that I've never seen um, that I that I love regardless, or movies that I don't particularly like, like the uh, the original Lord of the Rings score by um, uh, I've forgotten his name. I'll look it up. I got my computer in front of me right now. <laughs> you, got, you mean the, the the animated Lord of the Rings? The animated, the Leonard Roseman score. I love that score. The movie's the movie's not successful, but it, what a terrific score! Again, so intensely sort of rhythmic and um, oddly textured. It's uh, it's a really ambitious piece of music, and, uh, and that's one of those ones that I can sometimes write to, depending on the piece of music, because it's it's sort of seamless and 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 lithe and rich and layered and complex and uh, and uh, just like the books, I guess, um, less so than that particular movie. And uh, I find that I know that so well now, having been listening to it for for so many years that I can actually write to that. In fact, I'll probably on after this interview. I haven't heard it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, you bring up you bring up Lord of the Rings. What what was your feeling about Howard Shore's work for the re- the more recent trilogy? 
Wonderful. I, as soon as I heard that he'd been uh, that he'd got the job, I, I knew that he'd get it right. Um, mm. I loved his scores for Seven and uh, um, the game, and I, th- I think he's done some really remarkable work down the years. Uh, and, as, and as soon as I heard the, well, as soon as I sat in the cinema and uh, heard the first opening notes, I, I, I knew that he was exactly right. He captured the sort of simplicity of the Shire, and, and I knew he would get Moria right, and I knew that he'd get Mordor right. He, uh, he absolutely um, nailed it, particularly in the first movie. Yeah. There were a couple well, of moments in the second movie where I thought he, he was drifting a little bit close to, to Holst in places, and uh, there was one particular theme, the sort of Rohan theme, that uh, kept lifting me out of the movie because, uh, because it sounded so familiar to um, Holst the Planets, but uh, that's just a minor gripe. Otherwise, it was perfect. Uh, okay. Well, that's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, when, when his name was first announced, you know, there was a bit of uh, scuttlebutt on the internet about it. And because they're like, mm. okay, we know Howard Shore, we know he does the fly, we know he, you know, in other titles you, you've mentioned, yes. and it's like, now this is a little bit different animal, you know, and yeah, so I, right. <laughs> I was, I was totally blown away, surprised, and you know, it's obviously, well, not obviously, but it, it has become some of my favorite uh, all-time film music. Um, so, as I think, as, as Tolkien, I think Tolkien himself said, I think that every great story is at its heart about death. And uh, and the Lord of the Rings is very much about that. And I, and the last thing the Lord of the Rings movies needed uh, was a score that was uh, like John Williams, you know, uplifting and fanfare, fanfares and uh, marches and uh, like the Harry Potter music would be completely, utterly wrong in the Lord of the Rings. And I think Howard Shore understands death and understands loss. <laughs> I think that comes through, as you say, all his earlier scores. You know, it's full of death and loss and horror and. Uh, and I think that was the, the right note. All we needed to do was get the Shire right, which he absolutely did. There's, there's beautiful things. Ah, wonderful. And and I should say that um, to the audience, as you're listening, is uh, Sean Williams is speaking so eloquently and, and technically <laughs> well <laughs> about all of this music. Um, you're a composer in your own right. I mean, you've you've studied it uh, while you're in school. Um, you know, you you were top of the class at at some at some point. Um, <laughs> talk about that part of your about your life and 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 career. Mm, well, uh, ever since I was a, a young boy, I loved music. I mean, as I said before, my first record was the Star Wars soundtrack, and uh, many soundtracks featured in my teen years. Um, and uh, when I was in high school, it, um, uh, I, I loved music. I loved learning music theory, but I, could, I was never very good at an instrument. I, I was terrible at practicing. I was very, very lazy. Um, but I discovered uh, the more I got into the theory, the more interested I was in writing music. Um, at that time, I was also writing novels, uh, but I also liked the the exercise of writing uh, writing compositions of my own as well. So in my final year of school, I took music theory and composition, which was an absolute joy. I had a wonderful music teacher who encouraged me to try all sorts of weird things, and uh, he would often raise his eyebrows and, and uh, wonder what 
hell he'd done, but uh, <laughs> but it worked out well. I topped the state in, in that particular subject, and I won a Young Composers Award. And uh, and I guess at that point in my life, I faced a, a real crossroad. I had to decide what I was going to do. Was I was I going to do music? Was I going to write novels? Was I going to get a real job? And um, foolishly, I chose a real job. Um, and after a couple of years at university doing economics, of all things, I, I dropped out and again faced that crossroad. In fact, my, I had a wonderful music teacher at university, again, a theory teacher. He was a terrific, terrific fellow whose name I've completely forgotten on a Saturday morning. Uh, he, he understood my dilemma. I said to him, look, I, you know, I love doing music, music theory. I'd love to do composition. I'd love to take you as a private teacher rather than do it in the, in the, the university system. But... Um, I also love writing, and um, and I've, I think I've been doing writing slightly longer, and maybe I should give that a go. And he said, "Look, I'd rather you did music," but uh, he understood my dilemma because he had uh, had a choice between music and painting when he was in his twenties, and uh, mm. he chose music and never looked back. And he said, "Well, you've got to choose one. You have to choose one. You can't you can't do the backwards and forwards between the two forever, or you'll, you know, in order to succeed in the artistic world, you really need to give 150 uh, percent. So it had to be one or the other. So I chose." I chose writing, and um, that obviously worked out very well. But uh, somewhere in, a, in another trouser leg of time, I, I chose music instead. And mm-hmm. uh, um, even back in the early days of writing, I still had my Amiga 500 where I would write, uh, oh, try to write music on a four-track sampler, and um, I had all sorts of um, various music exercises to do for, uni- for university. But uh, in that other universe, um, I, I, music was the hobby. Uh, music was the career. Writing was the hobby. And um, now, I guess my, my dream would be to, to be a soundtrack writer now. I'd love to mm. have been writing uh, scores you know, through the through the nineties, you know, when television suddenly became such a really interesting forum for soundtracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, to say, Mark Snow, I really love the Mark Snow um, X Files soundtrack because his the textures he was using back then, using synthesis, synthesizers and sequences, hadn't really been used in television so successfully before, and it was uh, it was such a wonderful time to be listening to soundtracks. I think mm-hmm. the, the the Babylon Five score by um, oh, the guy from Tangerine Dream, what's his name, Frank? Um, Christopher, Christopher Frank. Frank. That's right. That's right. That, that, again, a really wonderful new kind of sound for television. As I was uh, you know writing and getting more successful at writing, part of me was always thinking, you know. Maybe I could have done that. Maybe mm-hmm. I could have been there on that wave. And uh, and again, just as I said, I listen to a lot of um, electronic experimental music. Part of me thinks I could have been doing that. You know, <laughs> right? I right. wish I was doing that. And uh, my dream one day is to be so successful at writing that I can, you know, spend um, six months a year writing a novel and then six months of the year tinkering tinkering with music. Um, right. In a way, starting again from scratch. Um, so yeah. that's it's my other great passion. And you can probably tell that I'm really invested in it and really wishing, you know, wishing I could do both. But uh, <laughs> my life hasn't well, been long enough. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you, you, you've got another, at least another half of, you know, of a life to go. You never know what can happen in that time. Um, now, true. you wrote something really interesting on your site, which you it sent to me, and um, your essay on sci-fi and music and how the 80s or around 1981 or so you see <laughs> as the pinnacle of, of both. Um, and and it's and I wish I had had time to read all the way through it, but I was kind of skimming through it. And uh, being a uh, a child of the '80s and growing mm. up myself, you know, I recognize a lot of the titles that you that you mentioned in there: Thomas Dolby, um, Prince. Of course, everyone knows Prince, but um, Devo, Art of Noise. Those are all uh, those are all groups that I listen to as well, and and remember that era quite fondly. Uh, but mm. but maybe you can summarize what your essay was about and how you tie sci-fi to to that era and why that's the pinnacle. Well, I remember 1981 really vividly because for three things, uh, 
three things, two things, three things. Uh, I'll list the things and hopefully it'll be either two or three. Uh, one was that uh, <laughs> uh, that it, uh, two albums came out. One was ELO's Time, concept album, Time, about a man snatched out of our world and taken to the future and, and where he had various adventures and then returned. You know, it was a, it was a pop kind of classic. It, uh, it was one huge hit from it, at least. And, uh, and I really loved that album because uh, I'd been reading a lot of science fiction and I'd been listening to ELO, which, of course, had... Lots of science fictional imagery on their covers, but he was an, an album that kind of combined the two. Um, Alan Parsons' projects, Eye in the Sky, kind of did the same thing, but less obviously science fictional. So uh, that came out in 1981. So there's that one intersection of, of music and science fiction. Also, um, the Atari 2600 computer game console came out then as well. You know, the classic computer game console. I, I was very lucky enough that. Uh, very lucky to have one of those. I was the only one in my school that had one, so I was very wow. popular for a bit, <laughs> despite yeah, being a great big nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just put and out I've there that, I, that I still have a functioning one, believe it or not. <laughs> I've been looking for one on eBay. They're hard to find down here. They are. They are. <laughs> uh, I, I curse the day my parents gave that away. Oh. Um, my friend has one of the, the, the main ones, a giant flat-top one that uh, we occasionally play, but it's not the same. Anyway, so uh, so we were playing uh, Missile Command and uh, Space Invaders while listening to, um, I remember um, Human League's Dare album came out there and Devo's New Traditionalist came out then. Uh, and the, both those albums, while not being sort of science fictional, both had um, very sort of science fictional imagery attached to them. You know, Devo with their plastic hair and uh, mm -hmm. Human League with their sort of whited out faces and uh, almost plastic hair. Mm -hmm. And the songs themselves, the sounds were so synthesized and... Um, you know, I really, when I was writing that essay, I wrote that essay in 2002, and um, there'd been a kind of an 80s revival where the songs were coming back, but the music that was being made in 2002 didn't really reflect what I thought was uh, a key part of the 80s kind of um, sound, which was that really big, fat synth sound, that big, raw, round sound that uh, that uh, no one was making in 2002. And I'm very pleased that now that sound is back in. Um, yes. I went to see Goldfrap play last week, and... Uh, uh, amazing British band with the the fattest synths I've heard for you know 30 years. Absolutely brilliant. So I'm glad to see that coming back. So so there was one intersection of Elo uh, and there was only other intersection of um, of, uh, um, of the Atari and Devo and, and Human League. But there was also movies as well. That was 81 was the year was that the year Blade Runner came out or was that the year The Empire so. Strikes Back came out? It was if the for, for the first time ever. Science fiction was really big in the cinema, and yeah. uh, soundtrack music, of course, was becoming more and more popular. You know, Star yeah. Wars was such a huge best-selling soundtrack, and Blade Runner. Everyone wanted the Blade Runner soundtrack, and you couldn't get it because I mean, you still can't get it properly. And so the music and and science fiction uh, combined in that area as well. And I think '81 was when it all came together just mm. perfectly. Maybe just for me. Uh, That's certainly a very interesting for point. Maybe for everybody too. Maybe, maybe we've been. Uh, maybe I, I think I've been searching for 1981 ever since. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we're yeah. getting closer now. But uh, but I still feel like that was the high point for me. Yeah. I've been trying to retain it. As we're kind of wrapping up here, let me just ask you what you think of um, 
film music today as a whole, video game music as well. I mean, for me, video game music's kind of moved into the place that film music held in my heart for a long time, um, where, you know, I'm, I'm more prone to, you know, the real strong melodic stuff, the big orchestral uh, symphonic stuff. I really love that. And, and, and film music kind of moved away from that, started to move away from that in the 90s, uh, getting much more minimal. Thomas Newman's, you know, all, uh, getting much yes. more Philip Glass, just very, which yep. I love too. But yep. but the big stuff was going away, and I was like, this is not cool. And video game music kind of moved <laughs> into that role. Uh, but now yes. it's pretty well balanced out i think but i wanted to just ask you what you what's your feeling about about the state of this type of music uh, in the here and now it's interesting to, to um I, I don't play computer games as much as i would like partly because um i need to write for a living and if i started playing computer games i'd never get anything done <laughs> sure. uh, but I, I think it's a fascinating form uh given its sort of inherent Mutability. I mean, you, you don't know how long somebody's going to be playing a particular scene, uh, but your music cue kind of has to survive that long. So playing the Star Wars games, as I, as I have for research uh, various points, it's really fascinating to hear the, the fragments of orchestral scores coming and going and layering. And you can, it's almost interesting to kind of sit in one spot just to see what the score will do. You know, will it run out? Will it loop back? Is there... Yeah some kind of AI system behind the score. I mean, what a fascinating, really fascinating media medium to write for, you know? what a, yeah, The challenges yeah. must be immense. And uh, there are some obvious ways to do it. I mean, there are some of the more ambient scores do just loop over and over again, and uh, and that can be fascinating in its own way too. But uh, um, I guess what I'm coming around to saying is I haven't heard anywhere near enough in, in action. You know, I like buying the scores to soundtracks, and I'm really pleased. It's just scores to games. I'm really pleased that so many of them have become available. Mm-hmm. Um, and are very popular too, um, yeah. but I haven't heard enough of them in actual. In it's like uh, it's a bit like buying the score without seeing the movie, buying sure. the sport of a game without actually hearing it uh, in 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 play. It's a completely yeah. different experience, and I wish I had more time to. Sometimes I like it. I've got a couple of stepsons here who play computer games, and uh, I quite like it when they play in the background. You know, apart from the explosions and the yelling <laughs> and the arguing, with each other, I do like hearing the music as, as it comes and goes. Yeah. Uh, what's that fantastic um, horror game franchise? Um, Oh, Silent Hill. Is it Silent Hill. Oh yeah, there is a Silent uh, Hill. Yes, that's correct. I used music to number two or three. Used to, I think it, it sounded like it was by a, a Biosphere or someone like that. It was the, absolutely the most terrifying music I've ever heard, and it was so minimalist and so strange. Because every now and again, something would would leap out of the loops that would would just scare the hell out of you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Perfect compliment to the visuals. They must have had so much fun doing that. Oh, I'm sure. And, and what do you think about just what about the state of film music these days? Uh, I'm a little bit out of touch. I don't actually get out to see movies very much now. Oh, I see really? a lot on DVDs. And, yeah, I, um, I I kind of agree with you that I think film is maybe a little bit like R&B or pop music now. I feel like it's uh, it feels like it's kind of done everything and is waiting for some new kind of paradigm to come along uh, mm. to kind of knock things around. The Thomas Newman, uh, he was the guy who wrote the soundtrack to American Beauty, wasn't he? Was yes. That? No, American. Yes, yes correct. No, uh, correct. Yeah, so that was a real, real change for film music, and I thought mm. I keep hearing echoes of Thomas Newman in, in kind of everything. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there's this: you get the Harry Potter's, the, the the John Williams knockoffs. You get the, the Howard Shaw's kind of creeping through, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of waiting. I wonder if um, musicians like Ben McCreary will ever move into film music more. Um, or, mm-hmm. or actually, that the guy. It's interesting to watch um, the guy who did the music for Lost and Alias. Uh, Michael Giacchino. Yeah, it's interesting to see him move into to film music as well, and I'll be yes. curious to see what he does more of as well. Yes. 
So again, an answer to your question, I guess I don't really know, but I'm, I don't see enough of it to really have any sort of you know, firm idea. Okay. But my feeling is that um, I'm, I'll know it when I hear it, when something new, new comes on. What, what do you think? I'll be curious to know what you think. Um, uh, well, yeah, like I was saying, I think things have kind of equalized a bit. I think things have come back from, from a little bit from the minimalist trend that was in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, and especially because of the Lord of the Rings, everyone got back on the big, bold, yeah. symphonic you know, trip again. Um, so that's still lingering, but you know, there's so many avenues now, uh, be it television, um, I, I love Barry McCurry's work that he did for Terminator, uh, the Sarah, Chrono- Sarah, Sarah yes, Chron- right. Chronicles. Sarah um, Chronicles. <laughs> there's so many, there's so many avenues for good music and unique stuff to come out. Now, you may be aware, or may, maybe not, of, and you, sh- and it's probably going to be fantastic, especially con- considering your love for the for the early '80s, um, and that is Tron Legacy with Daft Punk doing oh, the score. Oh, yes, with Daft Punk, yes. I think that could be something that is a seminal work. That's something that mm-hmm. that you, to use a phrase that's used far too much these days, a game changer. I think yeah. that it could be that. I thought the music to The Matrix was really interesting. I forget who it was. Wrote Don that. Davis. Don Davis did that. That's right. Really interesting. It's interesting when you hear, uh, and Alien did this as well. You hear somebody comes up with a particular cue that's picked up in all the sequels and uh, and, and yes. imitated over and over again. Terry Goldsmith did it with Alien. Um, uh, the Matrix did it. Uh, it's interesting yes. to see what the new cue will be that everybody wants to do. And maybe it'll be Tron. I don't know if you've heard the the samples that may or may not be the soundtrack that are on the web. Yeah, th- there's some fake ones and there's some real ones. The real stuff I like. Yeah. The fake stuff I was actually yeah. a little bored with, so I'm glad it ended up being fake. <laughs> yeah. But interesting, <laughs> interestingly enough, Jason Bentley, the music supervisor for the Matrix trilogy, is music supervisor mm. for Tron. So mm. I'm, I'm expecting some really, some really, something different but still good to really come out of yeah. that, that that film. Um, high expectations there. Yes, well, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, uh, Sean, I appreciate you taking the time. And how how is your before we finish up? How is uh, uh, Fatal Alliance doing for you? Is it is it flying off the bookshelves like you hoped? Uh, yeah, uh, debuted at number twelve in the New York Times, hardback bestseller list, and uh, is staying about that position in the second week. So that's a good sign. Excellent, uh, excellent. If you can hold a position on list like that, that's great. So yeah. we're very excited. Yeah, and and uh, the Force Unleashed two comes out around beginning of October. Is that about right? That's right. Yes. Okay. That's right. So we'll be looking forward to that as well. Um, yeah, and, so. and wonderful. <laughs> and we're going to be certainly looking forward to hearing your name maybe attached to some some composition that f- comes floating about for some something somewhere <laughs> somehow. Yeah, one day, I'd love to do a soundtrack to one of my own books. That would be, you know, the obvious thing to do. But I'd, I'd love to do that one day. I think. Yeah. That'd be- Challenging in a really weird way. Yeah, I think it would be an excellent idea, too. Well, uh, There's actually another Sean Williams out there who's a musicologist. Sorry, just before we go, there's a oh, Sean okay. Williams who's a musicologist. I know there's also a Sean Williams who's a film composer, but the, the musicologist Sean Williams is specializes in gamelan music, and uh, we've oh. always wanted to write... She likes Star Trek, so we've always wanted to write something together, but I'd also like to write music with her, and, uh, okay. and that would be interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. Well, well <laughs> definitely both of us. best of luck on maybe one day getting to do just that, and for the upcoming... Um, Force Unleashed novels coming out, and we hope to see that uh, see Fatal Alliance climb even higher. And, I, and you know, I won't be surprised if it does as the the day approaches that um, the Old Republic actually gets released. Um, hopefully, it'll give give your give your book even a bigger bump. Um, so we hope to. Yeah. So 
once again, I want to thank you for coming on the Soundcast, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you in uh, the days to come. My pleasure. Thanks, Christopher. It's been great talking. <laughs>